Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. Awfully glad to have Dr. Peter Kapsner on board for the Sunburnt series as it continues. We've only got a couple weeks left and then summer's over. And we've got a big, exciting announcement that we made, I think, last week that we are going to jump right into Old Testament, people of the Old Testament, what we can learn about them. It's almost going to be like a weekly Sunday school. We're going to have a lot of experts come on and talk about uh, Old Testament profs. They're going to talk about characters of the of the Old Testament and what we can learn from them and how it will apply in our life today. Peter, that's going to be a fun series. It is going to be a fun series. I think there's a very understandable lack of familiarity with the Old Testament beyond some of the really sort of more well-known stories that we would have grown up with our Bible board books or some maybe TV animated series that we would have watched. And so to get a little more deeply into it, I think it's going to be exciting. But I'm a little sad that the Sunburn series is coming to a close. We didn't for sure know how we were going to spend the summer, right? And it turned out to be a wonderful series of topics. I would love to go back and listen to all of them again, just with the guests that we've had and the topics that were covered. Yeah, it's been fantastic. And today is going to be great because we've got uh, the one and only Lee Strobel with us today. It's going to be really fun. We're going to bring him on in just a minute, time permitting. You know, you and I might might get real interesting and spend the whole hour talking. (laughs) I, I don't know that I would necessarily hold my breath on, on that, that part of it, but I am excited to have him on. I mean, this is what we're going to cover today. I think you know, too, right, Bill, is one of the questions that seems to come up every week on Faith Radio in some way, shape, or form, and that is what happens after we die? What is heaven like? Can we trust some of the accounts related to heaven? How do we understand some of the questions related to this eternal future, all of that? And, and who better than someone who, who has such a long history of putting such a sharp mind on these subjects than Lee Strobel? Yeah, he is a best-selling author, more than 40 books, and he has sold more than uh, 14 million copies. He has been awarded four Christian Book Awards and co-authored a Christian Book of the Year. He was described in the Washington Post as one of the evangelical community's most popular apologist. He's the founding director of the Lee Strobel Center for Evangelism and Applied Apologetics at Colorado Christian University, which is near Denver. Lee, welcome back to the show. Well, thanks. Always great to be with you. I, I You said that like you meant it. I appreciate that. I do. <laughs> no, you guys are awesome. Thank you so much. <laughs> you are such an amazing thinker and writer, and the way you process stuff, it's so compelling. And now you've got this book, The Case for Heaven, and we just can't wait to ask you about it, because it starts with you talking about a little personal dramatic brush with death. Yeah, 10 years ago this month, uh, my wife found me unconscious on our bedroom floor. I called an ambulance. Um, I woke up in the emergency room, and the doctor looked at me and said, you're one step away from a coma, two steps away from dying. And then I lapsed into unconsciousness again. Um, I had a, a rare condition called hyponatremia which is a severe drop in blood sodium level. And what happens uh, in that condition is your brain cells begin to take in moisture and your brain begins to expand in your skull. Well, there's no room to expand in your skull. And so I had hallucinations. Um, uh, I I was disoriented. I fell unconscious. And the next steps would have been death. 
And it's very difficult to uh, raise the blood sodium level in a way that doesn't leave you paralyzed or mentally disabled. So they had to do it very carefully over several days. And so I was on the uh, sort of hovering over that border between life and death for a couple of days, um, which is, by the way, a very sobering experience to, to go through. Lee, did that get you thinking a little bit more about heaven? It did, you know, and obviously I'm a Christian, I'm a pastor, I, um, I, I believe what the Bible teaches about heaven, and yet when you're facing, you know, the possibility of lapsing into eternity, um, you, want, you begin asking questions like, does this stuff really make sense? Uh, is there any evidence outside the Bible that supports this stuff? Um, how do I really know that when I close my eyes for the last time in this world, I'm going to open them in the presence of God forever? And so it, it just made me um, want to dig deeper for some facts. And, you know, my approach to books is uh, I'm not the world's leading expert. I go on and I find the world's leading experts and I sit them down and I cross-examine them mm-hmm. uh, from the perspective of a former atheist so I can get um, solid answers to the questions I've got. So I try to ask the kind of questions that average people would have and, and, and to see, is there any good evidence that the Bible's teachings are true? Lee, as you went through that process of interviewing people, what was maybe the most surprising thing that you discovered or learned or had to think about in, in relation to what some of these people were saying? Well, yeah, that's a great question. I think what surprised me the most, because I was a real skeptic about this, as maybe many of your listeners are, um, the topic of near-death experience. Um, I sat down with a PhD from Cambridge University, a neuroscientist, and interviewed her about the evidence for the existence of the soul. And um, she, I think, uh, makes a strong case that uh, we're not just a brain, but we possess a soul, a consciousness, a, a spirit that lives on after our physical body dies. But then the question is, how do we know it lives on? Is there any evidence it lives on? And she said, all we need is one corroborated case of a near-death experience to know that our consciousness survives death. So I began to research that area. And I, I thought this was kind of a new age thing. And, and I, was, I was just very skeptical. And I began to delve into it. What I found is there have been a thousand scholarly articles written in peer-reviewed medical and scientific journals about near-death experiences. This has been a very deeply studied subject over the last 40 years. And, and a couple of things really stood out. Number one, um, John Burke, a researcher and a Christian, um, uh, studied a thousand cases of near-death experience. And his conclusion, and this is surprising to a lot of people, but he backs it up verse by verse. His conclusion is, yes, there's some peripheral differences between what people experience in these near-death experiences. But he said, when you look at the core of it, they are consistent with Christian theology. And he actually wrote a, a long book called Imagine Heaven, where he backs that up verse by verse. So that was a, a revelation to me, that this could be consistent with Christian theology. And then secondly, I said, you know, if somebody tells me, oh, I died and I met Jesus, and by the way, he's five foot ten, he's got brown eyes and, and kind of a wry smile, and I go, I can't corroborate that. How do I know that happened? There have been people who lied about that kind of stuff um, and been caught at it. Um, so what I looked for was corroboration. What corroboration exists? Is there a corroborated case where um, we know that the only explanation is this person's consciousness survived death? And I found, and I document in my book, not just one, but lots of cases where people experience things, um, uh, having been separated from their body, a clinical death, 
uh, and their consciousness lives on and experiences and sees things and hears things they could not otherwise have experienced if they had not actually gone through a near-death experience. Leah, I, I know because you had a chance to sit down and talk to a lot of people, and when you were asking them about their thoughts of death, there must yeah. have been a lot of people that were quite fearful. Some maybe weren't. But for the people who are fearful of death, this can be almost a, a phobia of, of, of sorts. Uh, how can yes. we sort of overcome this? Yeah, it's you know it's very interesting. People take different approaches. I interviewed a, a, a scholar on this topic, uh, Dr. Clay Jones. He talked about some people deny it; they just don't want to think about it. Uh, they think this is going to happen to somebody else, not to me. Uh, they try to delay it by. Um, a lot of people get depressed because of this. In fact, one atheist said that depression is a serious problem in the greater atheist. It's not like to admit it, but it's true because they're afraid of death. Um, and yet, what's the answer? The answer is Hebrews 2.15, which says, Jesus set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. So, you know, the answer is Jesus um, and what he teaches about death. Well, why should we care about what he says? Well, couple of reasons. Number one, he's an eyewitness to the afterlife. We have solid historical data that Jesus not only claimed to be the Son of God, but he uh, proved it by returning from the dead. So not only is he an eyewitness to the afterlife, he created the afterlife. He is the Son of God. And so um, we can rely on teachings and the teachings of others in Scripture as a result um, about what heaven is going to be. And um, so I think, uh, you know, when, when we say fear of death, how do we get past it? I like to focus on what the Bible tells us about death um, and about the afterlife and about heaven and about the free gift of salvation available to all who come to Jesus in repentance and faith. Yeah, that's a great, great point. As a radio host, I sometimes get nervous when the guest, when they're giving a brilliant answer like you did, cut out a little bit. So we didn't quite get all of that answer in the mm. last minute. So. I'm going to just take a very short break and make sure our connection is strong as we go forward. Uh, Lee Strobel is my guest. His book is called The Case for Heaven. A journalist investigates evidence for life after death. We probably would have a chance uh, for a question or two if you wanted to let us know what that might be. I can pass it on, 877-933-2484. Again, the Sunburnt Series with Dr. Peter Kapsner uh, continues with our special guest, Lee Strobel. We'll be right back. Strobel's our guest. His book is A Case for Heaven. Lee, can I ask you kind of an embarrassing question? Sure. Yeah. This, <laughs> I mean, it's, it, I just don't want to be confused because you've written so many books, and you, you've you yeah. written a book on heaven. Is this the one, or is this a new one coming out? This is brand new. That's this what just I thought. came out. In fact, 
it's not even out yet. I know, September 14th. September 14th, right? Okay. Right. All right, so I've got two words from my listening audience, pre-order. Because <laughs> it's weird, because I, I have a copy of the book, because you sent it to the office, so I, I'm in possession of one, and I'm thinking, is this brand new, or is this a book that we've already discussed? So anyway, I apologize. Yeah, I, just got my first, I just got my first copy today. So. Really? I got a copy before yeah. you got a copy. Yeah. I know. I just want, How does that work? Yeah. I, I just want to jump in and say I'm clearly the junior varsity here because I don't have any copies on my desk anywhere at <laughs> yeah. this point. So, so Bill, let me know when I can get back in the playing field and get a copy of this book. It sounds awesome. Yes. So, Lee, <laughs> Lee as, a, as a complete coffee lover, uh, I, out of the book, you talk about how the smell of coffee helped lead you to believe in the existence of a soul. Please say yeah. more about that. Yeah, you know, um, a lot of people believe we're just our brain. In other words, we're just a bunch of neurons firing. Um, consciousness is a an illusion, um, and we're just physical um, physical computers, meat computers, so to speak. Well, I interviewed uh, Dr. Sharon Dierichs, who's a Ph.D. in neuroscience from Cambridge, and she said, Lee, here's a challenge. Describe to me the smell of coffee. And I said, well, I'm a writer, and I'm not sure how I would describe the smell of coffee. She said, well, you know, you could describe um, uh, the chemical makeup of caffeine. You could describe the physical process by which the body analyzes smells. But that's not going to get us any closer to what it really smells like. And her point was this. Um, um, The smell of coffee is a first-person experience. That is our consciousness. That is our spirit. That is our soul. In other words, um, um, you know, if you go to a concert and you're trying to tell somebody about the concert and you say, oh, it was a great concert. The music was thumping and the, the lights were flashing. And then you say, oh, well, I guess you had to be there. Yes, you had to have that first person experience. Science can map the brain. It can see what areas of the brain light up, so to speak, when certain thoughts take place. But those aren't the thoughts themselves. They're just correlated to the thoughts. You can't open a cell and say, oh, that's me. That's me in that cell. No. Um, uh, so the point is we have a consciousness, and it's a first-person experience. Um, if, if, this, if the physical brain was the same as consciousness, then everything true about the brain and consciousness would be the same with each other, and they're not. Consciousness goes another degree. It's, it's, um, the brain is more of a third-person experience, whereas the consciousness is more of a first-person experience. It's our, it's our introspection. It's our volition. It's our emotions and our desires and our perceptions and so forth. The, the soul animates and, and, and interacts with our physical brain, but it's distinct from our physical brain. And so we have a soul. And the question is, can that soul survive death? And, and all we need is one documented near-death experience to prove it. And as I say, we've got a whole bunch of them, including people who were congenitally blind, who never saw their whole life. They were born blind, and yet during their near-death experience, they were able to see and watch as rescuers tried to resuscitate their bodies. And they were able to describe that and so forth. And then when they recovered, they were blind again. Um, you know, we have 30, over 30 documented cases like that. Um, we've got 100 documented cases where um, people made verifiable observations during their near-death experience while their consciousness was separate from their body. And uh, 98% of those checked out. So something is going on here. 
Lee, when you're talking with some of the neuroscientists about that phenomenon of the near-death experience, did they say anything about the idea that death was less maybe sort of this finite moment in time and more of a process and that that maybe the skeptical explanation is your body sort of shutting down and you're hallucinating a bit in, yeah. in light of that? Did, yeah. did you hear about that part of it? Of course, yeah. And that was my – I was a skeptic when I started looking. I thought this was new age stuff. I thought it was the, the uh, an oxygen deprivation issue the brain. I mean, those are the kind of think, uh, thoughts I had. But, you know, you go to the Lancet, which is the prestigious medical journal from Britain, and they carried an article by a Dutch cardiologist who studied near-death experiences. And what he did is he was able to demonstrate every alternative explanation falls short. Every single one of them. They can't replicate this. If this were mere oxygen deprivation, they could replicate it. Um, but they can't. Uh, these aren't hallucinations. They're far more vivid and life-changing. And um, so, you know, I, I, I was left with the idea that, wait a minute, these are, the corroboration is what convinced me. Um, uh, for instance, Pamela, Pamela Reynolds was a, a housewife who uh, died in 1991 of a brain aneurysm, and they were trying to save her life through an unusual surgery. And um, they drained every drop of of blood from her brain. Three tests showed she had zero brain waves. She had no brain activity. She was clinically dead. And they put earplugs in her ears with 100 decibels of sound, which um, is like a subway train going right next to you. And they taped her eyes shut. She had a her, she described, I was conscious the whole time. I watched the operation take place. I went through a tunnel. I met some deceased relatives. I was in the awe-inspiring light of God. And then I came back into my body. And oh, by the way, she was able to describe in minute detail the highly unusual surgical instruments that were used. She was able to recount conversations that took place among the nurses during her surgery, where one of the nurses said, we have a problem, her arteries are too small. And the other nurse said, um, let's use the other, let, let's use the, the other side. Um, she even remembered that the song Hotel California was playing during her surgery. So how do you explain this? Um, it, 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 your consciousness, I think we have, I think, evidence beyond a reasonable doubt that our consciousness survives clinical death. Now, how long it does, I can't say. We can't say. But, but all we need is one case like Pamela Reynolds to show that our consciousness does endure after our physical body dies. So if you know if these are verif as verified as they can be, rightly, um, and, yeah. and we believe that these near-death experiences really do happen, and and we're sort yes. of in, a, in the in the thin veil of space, do, do you see a sort of a theological reason why might why God might invite some people into these kind of spaces and then come back? Uh, it, was there some common stories that they might have had about the experience themselves? That's a great question, and um, I think it's interesting that I think it's 23% of people don't have good experiences. They have hellish experiences. Uh, mm -hmm. For example, a guy named Howard Storm was a Ph.D. in art and, and, and head of the art department at a university in Kentucky, and he was an atheist. And um, he had a heart attack, went to the hospital. He was died, declared dead. Uh, but he recalls uh, getting up out of his bed, not physically, but his consciousness, and being beckoned down the hallway by these friendly guys who say, hey, come with us, come with us. And he did and went down this long journey, and they became abusive, and, and uh, all of a sudden they attacked him. 
tore him apart. He lost his ears. He lost his eyes in this experience. Uh, and he called out to God to rescue him from these demons that were attacking him. Um, and sure enough, God did rescue him from that. He's, he comes back to consciousness. He loses his atheism. He becomes a Christian and resigns his tenured position at the university and becomes pastor of a small church in rural uh, Kentucky where he serves to this day. Um, that's how powerful this experience mm. was to him, uh, that he, he changed his entire life as a result, his whole worldview as a result. Um, you know, why does God allow it in some cases? Uh, you know, I believe um, um, what Hebrew says, that we're appointed once to die and then the judgment, that, that we don't get an opportunity for salvation after death. Yeah, but this was not permanent death. This was clinical death. And God gave him an opportunity to reach out, which he did. Uh, and it changed his whole life and eternity as a result. So, and, and there's another thing that takes place. There are life reviews that people go through. And this is fairly common. I think about a quarter of the cases. This is not judgment because that doesn't come till later anyway. Um, but this is where in the presence of Jesus, they, um, he allows them to, uh, to go through a review of their entire life and they judge themselves. They, they are judged by their own words and actions. They see not only things that they did, but they see the, the way that rippled through other people's lives and changed and affected other people that they didn't even realize. And people are transformed by that. And, and the whole goal that they come back with is love. Is This is all about love. God doesn't care how many trophies you've got. He cares how you've loved him and you've loved others. And uh, so um, I think that message in some people's lives has transformed them. And we're not talking about people who are, you know, <laughs> kind of whacked out to begin with. We're talking about airline pilots, talking about bank presidents. We're talking about neurosurgeons. We're talking about cardiologists. We're talking about people who have nothing to gain by telling folks they've had a near-death experience because it's probably going to hurt their career. Um, and yet, and they don't, and they don't, they're not writing books about it. Um, but these are cases that have been reported in peer reviewed medical journals. Lee, so interesting. Uh, we're talking to Lee Strobel. His book is the case for heaven. A journalist investigates evidence for life after death. It's a book that's coming out next month, September 14th. It's going to be available. I also saw online, I think it was today. There was going to be uh, an online event on the 14th. Uh, I don't know if that's open. That's right. Yeah. Tell us yeah, more about is. that. It is. It's online. We're going to do it live at the um, uh, Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. Right. I'm going to give a talk and be interviewed about it, but we're going to put that over the Internet so anybody who wants to participate in that can do so and submit questions and so forth. Um, we also have a documentary that's going to be in movie theaters next March nice. um, that uh, on the topic of the book. Good. We've got lots more questions uh, for you, Lee. Uh, we'll take a little break when we come back. If you have a question, maybe there's time to get it in. I've got Peter and I have got a bunch of questions left for Lee, but we'd love to hear your question as well. 877-933-2484. Again, our guest is Lee Strobel. His book is The Case for Heaven. Be right back.
We're back with our Sunburn series. Dr. Peter Kapster and I are awfully glad to be hosting uh, Lee Strobel today. He's got a new book coming out September 14th, The Case for Heaven, A Journalist Investigates Evidence for Life After Death. Um, Lee, I think God will be revealing himself to us throughout all of eternity. Now, Mm. that one line is not enough to get me a book, but uh, how would you describe heaven? Mm -hmm. Is it one unending church service? What are the biggest misconceptions about it? Well, I think the number one misconception about heaven is that it is a ethereal place, that we're up in the cloud somewhere, that it's just our spirit uh, somehow um, um, lingering in some vague afterlife. And, and that's not what the Bible talks about. The Bible talks about a new heaven and a new earth. Um, God does not say in Revelation that he's making new things. He says he's making everything new. And so it's it's the complete uh, renewal of our world. It, it, it's a physical place. It's an earthy place, not just for spirits and souls, but for resurrected bodies that are designed for the kingdom of God. Um, so uh, it, it's resemble our present world and yet be transformed. It's like everything good about this world will be like on steroids in mm. heaven. We'll see colors that uh, we don't have in this world. Um, and, and as one theologian told me, in heaven— uh, the Cubs will always win the World Series. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, can I read you one quote that sure. I think of all my research, I, I think is the most powerful quote I came across. Because I don't take my belief about heaven from near-death experience. I take them from the Bible. And I take them from the Bible because Jesus not only claimed to be the Son of God, he backed it up by returning from the dead. We have good historical evidence that he was resurrected. Therefore, he is an eyewitness to the afterlife. Not only that, he is the Son of God who created the afterlife. And so my source of truth ultimately is Jesus. And um, the quote is from Charles Spurgeon, of course, the, the, the prince of preachers. Listen to this quote. He said, the very glory of heaven is that we shall see him, that same Christ who once died upon Calvary's cross, that we shall fall down and worship at his feet, nay, more, that he shall kiss us with the kisses of his mouth and welcome us to dwell with him forever. Isn't that a great, isn't that a great quote? Oh, is it ever? Yeah, Lee, when you're talking about some of the misconceptions, too, and trying to rectify those things, did did your work take you anywhere into some of Jesus's teachings about that there won't be marriage in heaven and what he might have meant by that? Because I think, for, for me anyway, it leaves yeah. me with the misconception that when I get to the other side, you know, this person that I've been married to for maybe 50 years, she's going to look vaguely familiar to me, but maybe that's about yeah. it. And so did, did you talk about that or think about that at all? I do. I have a whole section in my book about that topic because it is a common topic that people raise. Um, I think the two most common ones are, my pet, is my pet dog going to be in heaven? <laughs> and second, am I going to be married in heaven? And, um, you know, a lot of theologians say there is no marriage in heaven, and they base it on um, Scripture that talks about um, um, that issue. But um, I interviewed a theologian uh, named Scott McKnight. Maybe you know Scott McKnight. And yeah. um, uh, Scott makes a, a very interesting claim. He says, when you read the scriptures carefully, it doesn't say that there won't be marriage in heaven. It says, in a sense, that no one's going to get married in heaven. There'll be no new marriages in heaven. 
That's his point. And he backs that up in, in the book. I mean, I, I won't go into all of his, his uh, logic on that, but his, his position is, yes, there will be heaven, marriage in heaven. The Bible does not preclude that, um, but there won't be new marriages in heaven. Um, so, but people uh, disagree on that too. I mean, there are people on the other side of that who say that, uh, you know, that, um, um, there will be one great undifferentiated marriage, which would be us to God and, and through Jesus. Um, and that there won't be individual marriages, but, uh, McKnight and some others disagree with that. Um, uh, which I think, is, I think is a fascinating question. Uh, Lee, I've got a question from uh, someone who texted and saying, does Lee have any evidence of people going to heaven in in the case of someone making a commitment as a young person, but then subsequently seeming to fall away from their faith? Hmm. Um, you know, these thousands of near-death experiences, and, and we have some estimates, 300 million of them that have happened through history, uh, according to one calculation. They're, they're not uncommon. Um, all sorts of people have had different kinds of experiences. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, we have to remember that these are not people who have uh, permanently passed from this world. Their people are going to be coming back. They're clinically dead, but they're not permanently dead. And so I think we have to be careful the kind of lessons we take from that. Um, you know, do I believe that infants um, um, will be, um, be in heaven or, or children who die before? the age of accountability? Yes, I, I do. And I think there's good biblical evidence that uh, God will save those uh, who um, die before they're able to um, um, make a informed commitment. Um, I think there are some people, and I'll give you a great example, Charles Templeton, uh, who fell away from his faith. Charles Templeton was the pulpit partner of Billy Graham. They were best friends. He, uh, Charles was a much better orator than Billy Graham, had a great church in Canada, went to a liberal seminary and lost his faith, became an atheist, or as he said, agnostic. He was really an atheist. In fact, he wrote a book called Farewell to God, My Reasons for Rejecting the Christian Faith. And I became friends with him later in his life because I interviewed him for my book, The Case for Faith. Um, and he was an adamant atheist. He was the most famous agnostic in all of Canada. And, um, and yet, right before he died, his wife, Madeline, who's not a Christian, she's a deist, so she's not coloring this from a Christian perspective, but she was in the room and he said to her, Madeline, can you see them? She said, what are you talking about? They're here. You can't, you can't see them. You can't see these angels. They're right here in this room. They're coming for me. I'm going to heaven. I'm going with them. Um, and there are those who believe, including many friends of Charles Templeton, that he did, after having wandered many years from his faith, he did have a private transaction with God where he received his free gift of grace uh, at that last moment. Or, or, or I don't know, was he saved in the first place and, and, or not? Who knows? Uh, but they believe that here was somebody who had walked away from his faith dramatically, and yet there are indications that perhaps he was going to spend eternity with God. So there must have been a time where he came back. Um, I don't know. Does that answer the question? Absolutely, yes, it did. Yeah. Um, Lee, let me also add this in. A listener said, I love, I enjoy your books, um, but when Mr. Strobel considers his life before writing these books and examines his own life based upon his findings and what he now knows, how would he describe the transformation in his own life now knowing about God on a much deeper level? 
Oh, golly. You know, I was an atheist. I was a narcissist. I was a drunk. I was a womanizer. I was a um, self-absorbed, self-destructive, but very successful journalist. And, um, you know, my wife came to faith in Christ. I wanted to disprove it. I investigated Christianity and other world religions for several years, ended up concluding, based largely on the resurrection evidence from history, that Jesus is the unique Son of God. And on November the 8th of 1981, uh, received his free gift of forgiveness and eternal life. And my life was absolutely turned upside down and inside out. I mean, my values, my character, my morality, my attitudes, my priorities, my marriage, my parenting, my relationships. I mean, I could go on and on. Every aspect of my life was transformed. Um, And I think about my friend, Evil Knievel, uh, the great uh, motorcycle daredevil rider who who lived a wild, drunken, womanizing, uh, narcissistic life. Um, despite and perhaps because of all of his fame, um, was wealthy beyond belief, went to prison for beating up a business partner. Um, He's on the beach toward the end of his life, and God speaks to him on the inside and says, Robert, I've saved you more times than you'll ever know. Now I need you to come to me through my son, Jesus. And uh, he didn't know who Jesus was. We called Frank Gifford, the sportscaster, and said, who's Jesus? And Frank said, get Lee Strobel's book, The Case for Christ. And so evil did, and he was as radically transformed as any human being I've ever seen. Just his values, his character, his his temper, everything was absolutely transformed. And when he shared his story of coming to faith for the first time, 720 people came to faith and were baptized on the spot. Um, God changes lives. He revolutionizes lives. He's still in the transformation business. And um, so, you know, um, you know, any Christian can testify, uh, as I can, as evil can evil did before he died. Um, um, God can transform a person's character, morality, worldview, and so forth, and open the doors of heaven to them forever. Peter, do you think we're going to have to pay extra for that story? <laughs> I, I, I was worried about That's that. That's a very phenomenal fact, story. Going through it. That is a phenomenal story. I just, and and just uh, the lives that that's are premium material. I, I think, yeah, the journey that you went on to do that. I'm sort of curious. You you talk about having investigated other world philosophies. I'm I'm, I'm assuming other world yes. religions too. You write a, yes. about a pretty touchy subject in the book on reincarnation. What did you find about that? Well, that's a great question. As you know, there's lots of people who believe in reincarnation, which incidentally is the absolute antithesis of grace. You know, Christianity is based on grace, a free gift of forgiveness and eternal life. Um, Reincarnation involves a law of karma. Uh, It's works-based to the extreme. You can't even work off your bad karma in one lifetime. You've got to keep coming back until you do. So it is the antithesis of the teachings of Jesus. Um, And the goal, interestingly, of reincarnation is not heaven. It's enlightenment. It's nirvana. And how is nirvana described? It's described as what's left when you blow out a candle. In other words— it's the extinguishing of yourself. That's the ultimate goal. Uh, well, that doesn't, sound, that doesn't sound very attractive to me, but um, there are so many um, um, contradictions in reincarnation. For instance, uh, if you read Deepak Chopra, he says that, okay, you go through your life, you accumulate bad karma, you got to work it off in, ultimate, in future lives. Well, who calculates that? 
who figures out how much karma you've got uh, bad and how to work it off? He says, oh, it's the universe itself does that. It's automatic. It's like the law of gravity, the law of karma. That makes no sense. This is a moral question. You're, you're right, what you do right and what you do wrong. It, it can't be you know, something that a, a mindless universe determines. And besides which, if I'm working off the karma of a past life, I don't even know what that was because I can't remember my past life. Where's the fairness in that, that I've got to keep coming back to the sin-scarred world of suffering and deprivation and work off uh, my bad karma that I don't even remember from a previous life? It just, to me, did not add up. Our guest is Lee Strobel, and he's written a book called The Case for Heaven, and it's coming out September 14th. You can pre-order it right now. And he's written a book on heaven, but he's devoted two entire chapters to hell. So when we come back, I want to ask him about that. You're listening to the Sunburnt Series with Dr. Peter Kapster and I. So glad to be hosting Lee Strobel today. We'll be right back. you've had a good day. Thank you for spending time with uh, Peter and I today as continuing our sunburnt series through the summer. A couple more weeks, then we're done. But our special guest today is Lee Strobel. He's written a book called The Case for Heaven, A Journalist Investigates Evidence for Life After Death. Now, Lee, in your book uh, on heaven, you did devote two chapters to hell. What can you tell us? Well, yeah, I had to. Um, This is about the afterlife, and I believe... uh, the teachings of Jesus in Matthew 25 and elsewhere, that there is a place where those who reject God during their life, who walk the other way, who don't care about spending eternity in heaven, will spend their time and their life in hell. So I had to deal with it. I I found there's a lot of misconceptions about hell. I think one of them is that everybody has the same experience in hell. And yet I think teachings of Jesus are pretty clear in a couple of places that there are degrees of um, punishment in hell. Uh, Adolf Hitler is not going to have the same experience as your next door neighbor that hates God because he's an atheist and and uh, but doesn't kill six million Jews. Um, so uh, I, I think that makes sense that there would be a proportionality to what people experience. The other thing is I think people have a misconception about hell that it's it's torture and uh, torture is something uh, externally applied to you that I some tortures you. Um, hell is about torment. It, it's an internal thing. It's a regret. It's a it's a uh, a feeling of um, uh, that comes from within. Uh, so I think those are a couple of distinctions. I think too that the trends that we're seeing in the church, unfortunately are to try to mitigate it, to try to explain it away, to try to get rid of it, to try to provide an escape hatch from hell. Um, And and it's done in two ways. One is annihilationism, which is the belief that the righteous, those who are forgiven, will spend eternity with God, but the unrighteous, the unrepentant, will be snuffed out of existence, maybe after a short period of punishment. So uh, they won't spend eternity in hell. They'll be snuffed out. Um, 
And that kind of gained a lot of momentum uh, during the last part of the 20th century when John Stott, who was sort of the evangelical pope of, of the world, <laughs> one of the great evangelical leaders, um, wrote positively about annihilationism. Um, and again, it's a secondary issue, but I think it's important because it's not biblical. Uh, you know, Dan, Daniel 12, verse 2 says, Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. There's a parallelism there. Uh, when Jesus talked about the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25, he said, The unrighteous go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. And the same Greek word is used there. So if life in heaven is eternal, so too is life in hell. So I think there's a lot of arguments against annihilationism, even though it did have a strain in the early church of people buying into it. Um, Augustine, of course, didn't. Uh, he wrote against it. And then the other thing is universalism, that uh, we all go to heaven, uh, ultimately. That, uh, In fact, one theologian said, you know, I'm fine with the idea of Adolf Hitler being in heaven. I'm okay with that. Um, and I think the problem with that is salvation is uh, universal in intent, but not achieved in fact. In other words, it's it's potentially offered to everybody, but not all freely receive it. God gave us free will to make the decision to love him or to reject him. Um, and when you look in Scripture, uh, everywhere from the Old Testament, you know, Psalm 1-6 says, the way of the wicked leads to destruction, um, to the New Testament, um, the sheep and the goats and so forth, the narrow way, uh, uh, the narrow door that Jesus talks about to heaven. Um, so I, I think I think universalism is far more insidious of a theology, and I think uh, uh, clearly heretical and dangerous. I think annihilationism is misplaced. I think they can make a pretty good biblical case for it. I think it falls short, but it's a secondary issue. And, um, um, you know, I, I wouldn't use the word heresy when John Stott's involved. Lee, uh, when you go through those different uh, scenarios, too, it makes me think of the passage in Revelation where there is this this final judgment, this lake of fire. Is I, I'm yes. always puzzled over that. Is, th is this a different scenario sometime later than when the, the world sort of wraps up this version of it and God reconciles all things at this point? And then later there's it another is. judgment that happens? Or how does this work? Yeah, I, I, it's it's a little uh, obscure there uh, to know for sure, but I I understand it to be a subsequent um, um, judgment, and and uh, you know again, um, there's a lot of um, imagery and metaphors used when heaven is discussed. Um, you know, if if we're talking about spirits like demons and and, and Satan, uh, they don't have nerve endings to throw them into a lake of fire. You know, what does that really mean? And wouldn't you know? We talked about hell being a place of darkness. Well, wouldn't the fire of hell light up the light? You know, make it light. <clears throat> Excuse me. So, I think there's a lot of metaphors that are used there, and I think we have to be careful about what we take too literally. But ultimately, I think the idea of the eternal demise of uh, of Satan and his minions is, is, is clear. Lee Strobel is our guest. His book is The Case for Heaven. And Lee, in the book, you uh, the, it, the book wrestles with seven frequently asked questions about heaven. What surprised you about the answers you found? Well, you know, we talked briefly uh, earlier about one of them, the question of whether or not there's marriage in heaven. And of course. I was... I was kind of surprised that um, uh, some theologians say um, 
Yeah, there will be marriage in heaven. I thought that was very interesting. Um, the one that the question that I always pondered, and maybe I'm because I'm so shallow, is um, will my dog Nikki be in heaven? Um, you know, I, everybody has a pet that they love, and uh, I think a lot of people wonder, will the will we be reunited in heaven? And there's opinions on both sides of that. Uh, the Bible does talk about animals having uh, a soul, but it's it's a rudimentary soul. It's not the same where they're not made in God's image. So it's it's different. Um, you know, certainly animals existed before the fall. So they were part of perfect creation. So there will be animals in heaven. But will my dog be in heaven? That specific pet. And, and, and theologians are kind of on both sides of that. And uh, I think the generous answer is God is a God of love and surprises and generosity and grace. And wouldn't it be just like God to reunite us with uh, some of the pets that we've loved during our lives? Um, but I, we, again, we don't have a we don't have a, um, a firm answer on that. Uh, another issue that, that comes up is will there be rewards in heaven? And um, I was very interested that a well-known um, New Testament scholar, Craig Blomberg of uh, Denver Seminary argues very vociferously in a scholarly article. He says, here's a quote, I do not believe that a single New Testament text, when correctly interpreted, supports the notion that believers will be distinguished one from another for all eternity on the basis of their works as Christians. Um, so he doesn't believe that, uh, he, said, he believes that when you look at these passages that say, great will your reward be in heaven, well, yeah, because heaven is heaven. Heaven is so great, it can't be greater than great, you know? Um, and uh, so he argues against the idea that there will be any kind of rewards in heaven that will distinguish one person from the other. Um, now, some people say, yeah, but um, um, it's like it's like music connoisseurs. You know, if you're a connoisseur of music and you really understand it and so forth, you can listen to the same symphony that I do. And I have no interest in music. I'm not going to take much away from that, but you're going to have a much deeper and richer experience. But I'm not going to be able to see that or experience it. We'll both walk away saying, yeah, it was great. Could it be that God will reward people, um, Christians, based on their service to him in this world uh, in a way that gives them a, a deeper, richer experience in the afterlife that won't distinguish them and make other feel, people feel bad uh, but will enrich their uh, overall uh, heavenly um, uh, life. I, I don't know. I, I do wrestle with that question uh, in the book. Mm. Yeah, it's so interesting to just think about what awaits us in the future, whether it be family members or friends or pets or rewards, whatever it is. Yeah. When you were doing some of the research, was there any kind of common theme about people have a, beginning to have a genuine longing? I think you know to give up this life is not easy for anybody mm. at this point, yeah. but, but do people start having a genuine longing for something different, something more as they go through life? Uh, you know what? That's a great question because I interviewed um, on his last interview of his life, um, the famous evangelist Luis Palau, who shared Jesus with a billion people during his life, a billion people through his crusades and, and uh, festivals that he had around the world, one of the great evangelists of all time. And I got the opportunity to spend a day with him and his wife, Pat, in their home in Oregon uh, just before he died of cancer. He knew he was dying. And um, so it was interesting to talk to someone who was really anticipating heaven. And he was he was a little um, impatient about getting there. Hmm. Um, 
he, you know, he was ready to go. He said, you know, I've, I've made things right with people that, that um, I had any conflict with. I've, I'm, I'm all prayed up. I am, I am set. My bags are packed and, and honestly, I'm, I'm ready to go. And he said, I'm a little disappointed that it's taken longer than the doctors told me it would. Um, so he, he was one of those few people who I, you know, he, he was, he was, he had one foot out the door uh, into heaven. And, uh, and I asked him, I said, Luis, if you could send a text message back from heaven, what do you think it would say? And he said, I said to Christians, what, what was, and, and he said, um, um, to Christians, his message would be, um, uh, take a risk, you know, share your faith, tell others the good news. Um, uh, you know, it's up to Holy Spirit what happens. Just, just go out on a limb, share your faith with others. And I said, what would you say to non-believers? And he laughed and he said, I think I'd say, don't be stupid. <laughs> <laughs> and we laughed because he said it in a very winsome way. It was not a judgment. It was just a winsome way to say, hey, there's a better way. There's a better life. There's a better eternity. There is hope. And, um, and uh, I thought that was a, a great way to end our – and the other thing he said to me that I'll never forget, he said, again, on the deathbed of one of the great evangelists of all time, he said, Lee, when you get to the end of your life, you will never regret being courageous for Christ. Mm. Amen. Powerful way to end. Lee Strobel, wow. thank you so much. Not only are you good at writing, but you're really good at talking. Wow. Ah, I appreciate you guys. Thank you. This has been a joy. Good. It's been a delight for us. Lee Strobel has been our guest, and his book is The Case for Heaven. A journalist investigates evidence for life after death. It comes out September 14th. That wraps up our show. Dr. Peter Kapster and I have uh, been thrilled to have Lee as our guest. Peter, thanks again. Yeah, it was a blast. uh, Yep, and that is all the show we have for today. I'm already excited for tomorrow because we're going to have a great show tomorrow. Guy Talk will be part of that program. Have a great night, everyone. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.